the last thing you want is an above the fold story in the Wall Street Journal about how, you know, 20 million of your customers just had their uh, login information, email address and whatnot leaked to the dark web. Hello and welcome back to Marketing Trek. This podcast is aimed at marketing practitioners and really covers anything interesting that we find on our travels. The we, by the way, is Salvi Anderson, a marketing group of around 200 people that helps businesses operating in complex markets win the future. I'm Dom Horse, and today I'm your host. But on our trek, you'll meet many more marketers and communicators from the Selby fold. Yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. That was Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, which was made in 1993, 30 years ago. God, blimey, time goes quickly. And that was brought to my attention in Richard Chataway's amazing book, The Behavior Business. Now, just before that, Goldblum said, Don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent uh, in what you're doing here? Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. So replace genetic power with data science and we get straight to the heart of the problem we're going to talk to you about today. And Goldblum also said, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. So Jurassic Park is 30 years old this year, but how pressing is that script? It's a fabulous passage. And when you think about the implications of artificial intelligence or AI, well, there's probably a warning for us all in Goldblum's words here. So my problem with the power gifted by data to many corporations is that I'm not sure they've had discipline in how they've attained that power. And I'm sure that some of them probably aren't applying discipline in how they're gonna use it. And that's exactly what we're gonna explore today. Now, the inspiration for today's show came from an article written by today's guest that I saw promoted on LinkedIn. I'm going to link the post in today's show notes so you can find it there. But the TLDR is this. Following the law is not enough when it comes to data privacy and transparency. Those of us that are entrusted with the collection and management of large amounts of data must also be leaders in privacy and transparency if we want to build trust. Now, I know that data ethics might not sound like the most exciting subject, but firstly, it's important. And secondly, today's guest makes data interesting. He did it before in a back episode called Breaking the Cookie Jar, and he's done it again. Now, I happened to see on LinkedIn that he touched down in London for a very brief visit. So I got in touch. I begged him to come to the studio, which he did on February the 1st this year, which is when we recorded this show. So I'm delighted to welcome Steve Millman back to the recording studio. He's now the global head of research and data science at Dynata, which is the world's largest first-party data platform for insights, activation, and measurement. In today's show, Steve tells me that consumers face a significant risk of not understanding how their data is being used, especially with new technologies that can literally track everything they do. He maintains that some courts are even considering whether it's possible to give informed consent given the complexity of data usage these days. Later on in the show, you're going to hear Steve explain why personal responsibility still matters most, but how forward-thinking businesses are already working with trusted third parties to certify their data privacy and processes. But before we get to that, I wanted Steve to define different types of data because, frankly, it's all getting a bit confusing. Here's how our conversation went. 
I thought it might be useful to start by defining different types of data because we're probably going to dig into those a little bit later. Yeah. So let's define first party data. So first party data at its most basic is data that you have a right to say you own. And that could be because you produce the data or it could be because you have an explicit permission to use it. But the most important piece is that the step from data collection to you is one step. Cool. Third-party data. Third-party data are data that you use that you didn't collect and that you have access to through some other means, ideally through a first-party platform that has provided you data under their terms and conditions with the folks from whom they're collecting data. In a perfect world, that's always what's happening. That's not a perfect world. But the most important piece is third-party data is not data you collected or own. Okay, zero-party data. So first off, it's not zero. Um, You wouldn't say uh, zero first second. You would say zeroth. So it should be zeroth party data. Now, having said that, zeroth party data is today, it's largely a marketing issue. It's not a real thing in the sense that it's not been adopted and it doesn't really mean the thing that it was originally defined to mean. Originally, it was defined uh, by some folks at Forrester who did a really great article on the subject talking about the need for a kind of first party data in which there's a clear value exchange. So if I'm giving you my data, you're giving me something that I value in return. And that there is an explicit relationship in which there is a pledge not to use that information for direct marketing. That doesn't mean it can't be used in pursuit of understanding that could be used in marketing. But then on the basis of having that, I would never market to you directly. Okay. Synthetic data. Synthetic data, it's an interesting term. I've also heard it used to mean probabilistic data. But synthetic data ultimately is a kind of data that is driven by modeling or by combinations and anonymizations and combinations where you're no longer really talking about a person, but you're talking about a series of information that would define a kind of person. Okay. Proxy data. Uh, Not sure I can define proxy data for you, but I think as I've seen it used in the industry, I think it relates to uh, areas where you can't collect the data you want. And so you're using other data that you believe has some kind of uh, Uh, direct relationship with it. Okay. From an ethics point of view and a data category point of view, where are the biggest risks for the data owner, the individual, for the consumer? Yeah. For the consumer. I think the, the biggest danger is a fundamental lack of understanding of how your data are used and in what context you're giving up your data and then how much of your data. So there, there's even some uh, court cases happening these days where they're talking about things like full bore meters. So some software that you agree to put on a, a device that Uh, literally looks at everything you do. And they haven't ruled on this, but you can kind of smell where it's going, where they don't believe that any person could give informed consent, that it's not actually possible to give informed consent because it's too complicated to understand what you're giving up. Uh, It's one thing if I say you can use my data that you collect on an app and use that to target relevant ads to me. I can understand that any typical consumer, they may not understand how it all stitches together. That's not important, but they understand, okay, if it's sharing my information, I'm going to get let's say age and gender, you know, if I'm a 55-year-old man, I'm unlikely to get lipstick ads, right? And that's good, right? I don't want those ads. Ultimately, if I have to see ads, I'd like to see ones that are relevant to me. On a meter, though, you'll see potentially, right, different meters do different things, but you'll see every website you visited, how long you visited them, Um, in some cases, what you did there, um, whether you bought something, what you bought. Uh, Some of them read your email. And it sounds horrible, and it can be horrible, but in most use cases when you're dealing with a legitimate business. They have no interest in you as a person specifically. They're not looking to interfere with your life or read your emails. There's not a person on the other side sort of scanning through this stuff. What people don't understand 
uh, when they when they worry about those things is there's petabytes of data. It wouldn't even be possible for literal humans to just be sort of scanning through them uh, willy-nilly. And they use them in aggregate form to make decisions about what kind of ads should go to what kinds of people when we're talking about the advertising industry. Then there's the question of what happens if this gets into the hands of folks who have nefarious purposes. And that's where I think there are some big risks. Coming back to your original question, what's the biggest risk? I think the biggest risk is not understanding when you give consent for things, what that consent actually implies. And then to flip that around then, for brand owners, when they're using data, clearly there's a framework in Europe with GDPR and in, in you know, similar legislation in most developed markets. From a brand owner's point of view, where's their risk? So from the brand owner's view, there's two risks, right? So one of which is, is simply reputational. Brands don't want to be caught up in somebody else's bad behavior. And so there needs to be a level of trust that when they are using data collected by others, uh, when they're using high value audiences, which is a collection of individuals or cookies or, or whatever you're using that are used to target ads to folks through television or radio, digital and so yeah. forth. So there's a, a very large reputational issue. The other challenge for them, which is immense, and for a lot of companies they are really struggling with how to do this safely, is that they have customer lists and that's first party data. You know, if I buy something from Walmart online, uh, I have a legitimate business connection and the data they collect on me is legitimate for them to collect, everything's good, that's fine. Where it gets dicey is when they say, I'd like to enrich my CRM, my customer list. I'd like to enrich that with data that other people have. So I know that you bought uh, black socks, but I don't know what maybe other things about you that might lead me to want to put other advertisements in front of you. So when I want to enrich my data, Am I getting the data, number one, from a legitimate first-party source? Uh, number two, am I connecting the data in a way that is compliant and protects the privacy both of my consumers and the folks who provided data to the first-party provider that you're now getting as third-party? And so you can't just stitch them together. If I know it's you on both sides of that equation, that's a problem. That's a huge okay. problem. Um, so I need to find ways to anonymize and then still get back to being able to create these aggregate segments to advertise to. And there's a large risk there. So two big risks. One is that you violate the law. Um, the other is that anytime you create an opening where your data is accessed by a third party, whether it is the provider giving you the append data, or if it's one of these sort of trusted middlemen like an Experian or a LiveRamp, you know, once your data is out there, is it at risk? The last thing you want is an above the fold story in the Wall Street Journal about how, you know, 20 million of your customers just had their uh, login information, email address and whatnot leaked to the dark web. Yeah, that's expensive in many ways. Not least trust and reputation, right? Yeah, not least. And the uh, inevitable class action lawsuit that follows. Yeah. And I suppose this touches straight to the heart of the issue about legal versus ethical and, and brands needing to hold themselves to higher standards. Are, are there any bodies, whether that be industry bodies, industry associations, that are doing good work that you know about who are talking about like ethical standards that businesses should comply to? Or is it very much up to individual businesses to work out where they stand? Yeah, I mean, I think every industry group is talking about this. I mean, you, if you look at the, the ANA or, or you know, the advertisers uh, organization, the market research industry group like the ARF, survey collectors like ISAMAR, all of them have statements on this and they all have ideas on what the right thing to do is. It's very hard to keep up with them because the legal landscape is evolving so quickly. So yeah. things that we think perhaps are egregious maybe hasn't been encoded into law. Things that we think are not challenged um, have been placed into law. And I would actually, I would throw this back to like the early days of TV. 
Congress didn't want to regulate TV. It really didn't. But TV wouldn't regulate itself. And we're in the same boat today, which is Congress didn't want to legislate this. I don't think the EU wanted to legislate this either. But they had to because the industry wasn't creating enough safety to avoid it. And then what happens? Well, you have legislators who don't understand the industry fundamentally writing laws. And then you have vague laws that are potentially not likely either to be effective or possibly to be so effective as to kill the industry itself. You have these uh, sort of wide, hard to understand rules, uh, GDPR is I think 100 sections, and then the courts get them, and then the judges don't understand the stuff either, but they try. I mean, and just to be clear, everybody's trying their best. It's not like I'm suggesting anyone's a bad actor in that setup, but then the judges have to figure out from this vagueness what the actual interpretation should be, what's the standard, and uh, things can get funny. Um, so Virginia, my home state, uh, we just passed a law that was written in a way that it's being interpreted to mean that you cannot serve ads to folks via activation unless you have the individual permission of every person. So the way activation normally works is you have a group of people, let's say 500 or 1,000 people, who have agreed to take a survey. It's all fully first permissioned. You learn a bunch of stuff about them and you say, okay, these are the characteristics that appear to define, let's say, the kind of person who wants to buy the new Ford Mach-E. Yep. Great. And then I will take some other data source and I will run some modeling and I will say the probability that these 3 million Americans are like the ones that I found in, in the survey. And those are going to be people who are much higher probability of buying, wanting to buy a Mach-E if I can get an ad in front of them. Great. And then you send it out. And as long as they're permissioned, uh, the, the folks who are actually sending the ads are, if they're permissioned to serve the ads to the folks that they've collected. And I'm permissioned to collect the data I collected from my survey respondents. Everything's fine. No personal PII is shared. No personally identifiable information is shared. Everything's great. I think it's a little fuzzy, but people are interpreting what they did in Virginia as meaning I would need to actually get permission from every single person I then activated to. So all 3 million people would have to tell me it's okay to send them this ad. And as a result, people are stopping doing this kind of work in Virginia altogether. There was a bit of that with, I mean, as you say, GDPR was an enormous piece of legislation and it confused the hell out of pretty much everyone and still does. Yeah. Reporting to your board on your GDPR requirements is such a big issue, I think. Yeah. It's hard to get it right. It's keeping a lot of lawyers employed. Well, I was going to say, and there's yeah. a whole new breed of consultants who do nothing but talk about it. But we're still talking about the legal yeah. requirements rather than the ethical bar, I suppose, to behavior. Yeah. How do businesses get their head around the difference between legal and ethical? Because to most people at the moment, I think because the legislation is so complicated, they're saying, are we compliant? Brilliant. But actually, you're saying that's not enough. Yeah, I'm saying it's not necessary and sufficient. And, and part of that is that the laws aren't being written to set a standard for businesses to be ethical or moral in the way that they use data. It's being written correctly. I should say, to protect the rights of consumers. And it's being written to protect the rights of consumers because there are enough people who are not considering this as an ethical or a moral issue that they have to do that. So I think the way to think about the ethical and moral responsible versus the legal responsibility, as with many things, I think about things in terms of schoolyards. If you're in a group of 10-year-olds and you've got one 10-year-old and this 10-year-old is clean foot taller than everybody else, outweighs it by a good 10 kilo, Right. And everybody's out playing ball. I think we would all argue that that person has a moral obligation to be more cautious at play yeah. uh, than the other children. And the reason's obvious, right? Because this person could, without ill intent, create tremendous harm. 
Yeah. And I think that way about companies like mine, other brands in the industry that collect vast amounts of data, other vendors, advertisers, the folks in the advertising ecosystem, I should say. And so we have a massive amount of information on a massive number of people. And we are tiny in comparison, for example, with the walled gardens in terms of the amount of data collected or some of these other companies that have full meters. So what does that mean? It, It means that because we have the capability of being harmful to the ecosystem, it is incumbent upon us to take all the steps necessary to protect those. So if you're one of my survey panelists, you are literally the blood in my system, right? In, in the terms of the company system, I can't operate without you. And I have to protect you in yeah. order to make sure that you're going to come back and do this. That's the business reason. But on the other side, I think we all need to hold ourselves to a standard and say, look, I don't want to be part of this kind of harm, right? Yeah. So we have to be very cautious. And I think every company, regardless of where they are in the ecosystem, should be looking at it this way. I came across an interesting way of looking at this, which may say that an ethical approach looks at the outcome of data use rather than the process or method of data use. So GDPR is very much about method, process, the nuts and bolts, but it doesn't concern itself necessarily with the outcome. Should brands be thinking about like, why am I using this data or what is the outcome rather than can I use this data? I do think they should. And I think we don't have to look very far back in history to see why we need to do this. The one that everybody's familiar with is Cambridge Analytica, yeah. right? And I know Facebook now Meta got a lot of uh, heat for that. And to an extent, that's obviously rational. But I think it's important to note that Cambridge Analytica was violating Facebook's terms of service in the way that they were using the data. So the data that were being used, had they been used for benign purpose, would have been fine, Yeah. right? The data being used as they were by Cambridge Analytica to create psychological profiles and taking data not meant for non-advertising use. There's a lot of political advertising in the world and people work really hard to do political advertising that's going to be getting the right message to the right person at the right time. So one could argue whether or not this is bad for society that we build these very complicated targeting structures. But you come to illegitimate use of the same data and you can do harm. And I think we do need to focus on what are we trying to accomplish here. So I'm having conversations recently with a large walled garden about uh, use of data and how we use our data, not, not their data. And one of the things that comes up over and over again is they are thinking of more about whether or not we own our data than what we intend to do with our data. And so I'm educating them what we're intending to do with the data. Yeah. And that makes everything in the process less scary because we're not trying to do anything like that. Yeah. Right? We're, there's a big difference between trying to create an emotional environment where people who are going to vote against your candidate are going to be so frustrated that they won't go to the polls or spreading disinformation and trying to get someone who might like orange juice to know that you've got extra pulp, <laughs> right? There's a big difference the between those use cases, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's really important to, to think about outcomes. But because of that, it's also really important to look at transparency. Yeah. It was not transparent what Cambridge Analytica was doing with the data. Yeah. That had to be found. And so it's vital that the ecosystem have uh, structures in place to make it easy to see, almost like a blockchain. I know where my data started. I know where it rests. I know what it's doing next. But there's no way of knowing how it's being used, I guess. I'm thinking maybe like gaming companies, online sports betting companies Mm -hmm. who have enormously powerful data, most of it first party because it's behavioral. And I think in that particular industry, they're so well aware of the ethical implications and legal implications of getting people addicted. But I think they are 
well, they're regulated, but self-regulated to a higher standard, I think. Yeah, I don't know a, a whole lot about that industry. I do know a couple of people in the online betting ecosystem, and I will tell you that you know they are turning gray young, worrying about exactly this. Yeah. Right, let me take one step back. When you're looking at the way these companies use their own data, it's also very different than when you're using somebody else's data. And so there's an ethical element there as well. So let me come back to the big social yep. media companies. And everyone does it a little differently, but they all kind of do it. They have some team that looks at human behavior on their platform. And this is no different fundamentally than uh, a retailer doing um, UX research, right? How are they using yeah. the platform? Is, is it easy to make my transaction? And so they're looking for ways to keep people on platform because the longer you're on platform, the more ads you see. But, you know, there is an ethical line. And, you know, does that company have a committee on the use of humans for experimental purposes? Much of what some of the walled gardens get in trouble for is completely innocuous. It's stuff that every company with a website does. Yeah. But it seems worse because it's a social media platform. Is that because the volume of data they've got or because because it is a walled garden and they're not sharing data or? I think it's twofold. I think one is the volume, clearly, and the media likes a big target. Yeah. Yeah, there's no question about that. You know, they're not going after websites with, a, you know, 100,000 users. The other piece is because it's so personal. What people share on social media sites, it can be deeply personal. It People talk about where they travel. I said I was in London this week, right? Yeah. I said it on social media. My social media is very clamped down, so it's only my the, the folks that I want to see it see it. But still, even then, yeah. I might talk about the day I had. I might talk about problems I have with relationships. I could talk about all sorts of things that are very, very personal that isn't going to come up on Walmart's website, Yeah. right? And I think that's what makes it touchy. Okay. So in that case, it's because they have insight into very highly personal details. And yeah. of course, they know exactly who you are. What's really interesting about this point from Steve is that it speaks to a deeper problem that many of us have, at least to some degree, with our relationship to social media. The problem of data privacy and ethics doesn't just come from the social media giants exploiting the information they have on us. Actually, it really comes from the amount of data we give to the platforms. So if we aren't comfortable with Facebook knowing our relationship status, or with Instagram knowing what places we're going to, well, then we have to stop sharing it. If we want to have more privacy online, we have to be more private first. That means only sharing the information we're comfortable giving away. This is just a quick reminder that you are listening to a very special episode of Marketing Trek with me, Dom Hawes, and today's guest, Steve Millman from Dynator. Coming up on the podcast, we discuss why personal responsibility still matters most, and we look at which companies are helping in the fight for privacy and how they're helping. Steve explains why it's unlikely that our future will be cookie-less anytime soon. But first, I wanted to talk to Steve about ethical data policies and social media. Here's what he has to say. Do you think there are cases where manipulation of data can either remove or restrict agency from users? I mean, I think addictiveness of social media probably in the early days was something, a good example maybe. But are there cases you can think of now where, where there's a risk of that? Every platform that I interact with online, let's just stick with online for this for the time being, but it's also true in brick and mortar, is attempting to manipulate my perception for their benefit. Okay. Actually, let me give you a really basic one we've been doing for decades and decades before the digital world. In a grocery store, yep. they know that you are most likely to make an impulsive decision at the register. Yeah. And so what do you see at every register at every grocery store? You see candy, right? 
I won't buy a whole bag of candy. That's crazy. I don't want a whole bag of candy. But, well, you know what? I'm at the, that's just one Snickers bar. I'll eat that Snickers bar. Which shelf things are on is manipulated to draw your eye to it. Things that are primarily going to a female audience will be on a lower shelf than things that are going to a primarily male audience in, in some cases. Also, brands pay money to be in preferred spaces. So you could argue that in every part of your life, brands are attempting to manipulate you. But really what they're trying to do is to be competitive in the marketplace. I don't have to buy that Snickers bar. I have agency. Yeah. But, you know, if it shifts the probability of me buying that, you know, obviously that's a good strategy for the company. So let's go back to the walled gardens, for example, or for the online retailers. They're doing the same thing. They are trying to figure out what is their best foot forward to monetize. And if you're a retailer, that is about putting um, the things you most want people to buy in front of them or understanding what that person coming in is most likely to buy and putting that in front of them. Where you're talking about social media and anything where you're not paying. So any app anywhere where there's no payment, it's important to understand that you are the product, right? Yeah. You're what's being sold. I know that. I think reasonable people probably understand that they're not getting things for free because the company's building it because they like Yep. handing this stuff out. I have agency. I can choose not to do any of this. Yep. I think if we are present in our minds that like every other company, pretty much in the history of capitalism, that they're trying to manipulate me to maximize how they can monetize me, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I have no agency in this situation. That said, you know, are they taking advantage of people who maybe have characteristics or personality traits where they are uh, less resistant to this Possibly than I am. I say possibly because I will tell you, I buy a lot of cooking equipment Um, (laughs) and uh, the online ecosystem understands this and tempts me constantly. I think where it gets really dicey is when you're talking about people who are vulnerable, um, particularly uh, the young and the elderly, people who might have some kind of mental health challenge. And I do think if you treat everyone with the same broad brush, you are going to have this problem. And I think probably the laws protecting children are not strong enough. And I do think that there is an ethical consideration for anybody who, who legitimately owns data related to children. Uh, the standard is much, much higher. Okay, I was, I'm interested in the concept of personal responsibility because these days it's not much, you don't hear that so much. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the company's responsibility to police their output, um, yeah. irrespective of whether personal responsibility is taken or not. But that's part of the mix, right? That's what we're saying. That, yeah. that So if a company is behaving to ethical standards, it's perfectly okay because it's what we do as marketers. We're trying to persuade people to buy our products and services. So as long as then we're not taking advantage of people who don't necessarily have agency anyway, mm-hmm. then that's okay. Yeah, I think so. If I want to tell you how good my brand is and that you should buy the brand, as long as you have the ability to turn that off yeah, and you have the ability to where you're not in such a vulnerable state that you don't have the capacity to make a, a reasonable choice, yeah. then it's fine. It's no different than the television. I could turn off the television. Yeah, I don't have to listen to the ads. So we're making choices about the things that we're willing to be exposed to in order to get the things we want. I spend a fair bit of time on Facebook. I actually really like the platform and partially because I'm so deep in the ecosystem and I know what they're doing with my data. I don't worry so much about it because at the end of the day, all that's really happening, unless there's a bad third actor. I've been in this pretty deep. I really don't believe from the data I've been exposed to that I'm being manipulated in an unreasonable way. Yeah. Uh, you know, as a 53-year-old man who understands how all this works, <laughs> right? And I like the fact 
that the ads I get on Facebook are much more properly tailored to me yeah. than if they couldn't use my data to do that. Given the recent court case in the UK, Facebook's going to have to start asking people for permission to use their data for ad targeting uh, separate from their terms of service, which is a huge, yeah. huge shock to the ecosystem, I have to say. I'll probably be one of the relatively small percentage of people who say yes. Yeah, don't show me garbage. Don't show me garbage. <laughs> look, I, I don't want to see ads you know, for women's underwear. Thank yeah. you. Show me more cooking. Are there any like third-party companies or like trusted intermediaries that are helping with the whole ethical situation in this business? Yeah, uh, it's interesting. There have been a couple of companies that have come out in recent years uh, with the express purpose of being an independent, trusted third-party verification process, specifically for privacy and for transparency of the way that you handle your data. So you can think about things like the uh, Media Ratings Council coming up with what is a viewable ad and what is fraud. And so we now have these private companies coming in and saying, uh, we're going to evaluate you and see whether or not you can find privacy information on your website, whether you talk about using your data aligns with best practice. And so transparency and privacy certification is now available. And in fact, Dynata just uh, got certified by one of these Neutronian, which in transparency, I am a member of their board of advisors. Okay. But they've gone out and, uh, and evaluated something like 2,500 or more companies as a consumer or as someone in the advertising ecosystem, I can go there and I can look and I say, yeah, I'm interested in working with this vendor. Where do they fall? Uh, so Dynata uh, has the highest data quality. They call it data quality score, but it's, it's really about privacy and transparency in our competitive set. Okay. Uh, some are very, very poor. Some are very, very good. The process of certification is also one of those steps that I was talking about earlier about taking yourself to a higher standard than the law requires. Okay. By hiring a service like this, um, not only do they tell you where you are, which isn't a bad thing, but they also tell you where you're falling short specifically. And then we can add those into our roadmaps and fix them. Okay. So I've seen a few of those sorts of products around ESG mm -hmm. where you get a rating and then a, and then a work path to improve rating. I didn't realize there was the same thing in data. So it kicks off with an audit process or a workshop or... Yeah, so it kicks off with an audit process. So they're already looking at a bunch of companies that don't contract with them. And so they are rating the ecosystem okay. already. Yeah. Uh, when you contract with them, they give you the specific results, exactly where you did well, where you fell short. Okay. And then they take it a couple of steps further uh, okay. because you're, you know, you're sort of opening up the doors for them so that they can see a little more. And then there's some back and forth after the audit. You have an opportunity to make corrections for things where you want to improve. Uh, and then wow. ultimately that shows up in your quarterly score. And I think rating services like Neutronian are going to become much more important over time because it's a way for people to rate something that is virtually impossible for even a very well-educated professional yeah. uh, who's not specifically an expert in this place to understand. And as we all think about risk abrogation and the amount of risk there is with data privacy, I think companies are going to start really focusing in on that as one of the characteristics they look at in selecting vendors. Yeah. And I think as that happens, that's going to force everybody in the industry to raise their bar if they want to compete. So I think that's really good news. So, you know, because you already have that with the ISO and SOC 2 mm -hmm. so around cyber and you know, data security, yeah. but actually having some kind of standard around privacy, I could see being a real game changer in terms of the trust between a consumer and, and the businesses they deal with. Yeah. And companies that have a good track record and where their consumers trust them, there's a lot of research out there that shows they're much more likely to buy. Yeah. Is there anything going on? I mean, last time at the end of the interview, you were able to talk about something you guys were doing at Dynate that was really interesting. Is there anything going on that we haven't touched on here that you might want to give some airtime to? 
You know, as I, as I suggested when I was here last year, it seemed unlikely to me that they were going to deprecate cookies yeah. by the end of the year. And then obviously they've down kicked the can down the road another two years, so another one more year from here. So I'd say two things about that. It's probably unlikely that they're going to hit the next one too, the, the okay. next timeline too. I mean, they might, they might, I don't, there's really brilliant people working on this, but the UK decision that they are trying to abide to from a year ago, two years ago, requires them to uh, submit to the UK body, their plan for what to do when they deprecate cookies. And if they don't accept it, then they can't continue to work in the UK. And because like virtually all of these large uh, advertising platforms, it's just too difficult and too dangerous to have different standards in different geographies yeah. because it bleeds and, you know, in a heartbeat, you're in trouble. So they tend to pick the most conservative approach. So wherever the things are strictest, that's the standard. So whatever they do for the UK has to be what they do everywhere. And the problem is, is that part of this decision was a suggestion that their plan for getting rid of cookies was non-competitive. So once they get rid of cookies, it makes the data that Google collects much more valuable in the marketplace because yep. you can't get it through yes. third-party cookies. And so in the position they're in right now, and I would not say that anybody over there is thinking this, but if you sort of think through this logically, right now they cannot get rid of cookies because they have a government body telling them that they can't until they come up with a better solution. And as long as that happens, you know, they're still making money on this. Yeah. It's really hard to come up with a solution that the industry will accept because every other player in the industry is looking for their own competitive advantage. Yeah. And so you're kind of in a rock and a hard place, but it does put them in a position of being able to say, I think legitimately, um, we're trying to do the right thing, yeah. but we're not able to. And in that context, the status quo actually works out pretty well for them. They do seem to be genuinely concerned about digital fingerprinting, the idea that I can see everything that you do everywhere on the web through stitching together these different sources. And I think they're right to be concerned about that. But their hands are tied a bit because on the one hand, government won't let them do what they're thinking is the right thing to do. And the rest of the industry won't go along with anything that's good for Google. So yeah. status quo is not a bad place for them. It's totally unlike the British government to be sowing confusion. I mean, you know, they've been so clear about they've what their intent is. Very this clear, year. very clear, very clear. <laughs> Thanks very much indeed, Steve, for coming to see us on your flying trip to the UK. Thank um, you. Really fascinating stuff there. So thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, that's the end of today's show. Thank you so much, Steve, for returning to see us at Marketing Trek, especially as you were on such a short stop over in London. But I really appreciate it. And it was another fascinating chat. I think my key takeaway probably from today is that data use and privacy seem like a big, scary, complicated mess at the moment. But actually, you know, Steve's own composure and calmness says a lot. Like if someone who knows that much is kind of relaxed about it, maybe we should all stop flapping. If we're honest, most companies focus on the legal standards to avoid penalties and lawsuits, but the ethical aspect is equally important, if not more so, in terms of building trust and reputation with customers and the wider public. To address the difference between legal and ethical standards, businesses really need to start by understanding their core values and their commitment to their customers and stakeholders. It's essential to establish a set of ethical guidelines that go beyond just complying with the law. These guidelines should be based on the principles of transparency, respect for privacy, and responsible use of data. 
If you're looking to develop a strong ethical framework at your business, here are some things you may want to think about. Firstly, engage in very open and honest conversations with your peers and the remainder of your organization around data privacy, ethical concerns, and be clear about what the consequences of data misuse are. It's really helpful to discuss this stuff, just to kind of build a picture in people's minds of what can possibly go wrong. Secondly, you don't have to make it up. You can consult industry best practice, and I'm sure your industry association will probably be publishing some kind of ethical guidelines so that you can keep up to date with, but firstly, the evolving legal landscape, but also what best practice looks like. Thirdly, you really need to be conducting regular checks and audits. You need to review your own data practices, not only to make sure you're complying with kind of the law, but also with the standards that you want to set yourself. And finally, Foster a culture of ethical behavior yourself by making sure you're providing training to your people and encouraging open communication about data-related concerns. Like if something goes wrong, you need a black box. You need to bring it out and bring it into the open. Don't hide it because otherwise nobody learns. I mean, ultimately, it's about transparency, I think. You've got to be transparent with your customers about how their data is collected, used and protected. And you've got to ensure that they've got control over their personal information. And you need to be transparent internally as well. If you've got concerns, raise them. Next week on the podcast, we're launching a very special six-part series called Resisting Recession, where we talk to six different and incredibly interesting people about how marketers should be responding to the recession. So we are not only talking to marketers, we have got some marketers, some very well-known marketers, but we've also got private equity companies, we've got venture capital companies, we've got management consultants. The idea is to take an outside look in and an inside look to say, what should marketing be doing to help businesses drive value during recession? And our first guest, it's going to be Steve Lemon. He's a partner at the UK-based venture capital firm Volution, and we are going to talk, unsurprisingly, about resisting recession. Now, just before I go, I would like to tell you that you can find detailed show notes and sometimes extras at marketingdifference.co.uk. You can also register there to make sure you don't miss any important shows. And I'd also like to ask you a personal favour. If you've enjoyed the show, please tell a couple of your colleagues about us or maybe consider rating and reviewing this show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's your call, of course, but I'd be grateful because it takes us around eight hours to make each show but only around 30 seconds to review it. Marketing Trek is conceived and produced by Selby Anderson with creative support from One Fine Play. Nicola Fairley is executive producer. Connor Foley is the series producer. Kajra Ferruzio is the audio engineer and editor. And the episode is recorded at terminalstudios.co.uk. See ya! Mm-hmm.